stop. Look at the world around you. Your chair, your phone, the office, the electronic device you are listening to right now. All made possible by industrial manufacturing. Have you ever wondered what went into making these products? What if I told you that it takes roughly one gigajoule to create a smartphone? This is equivalent to about 280 kilowatt hours, or 73 times the electricity used to charge the phone for one year. Now multiply that by 12 billion, the number of global smartphone users. That's a lot of energy. Industrial manufacturing is the fabric of our economy. Products manufactured in industrial plants have housed and connected people around the world, improving our quality of life. But a tremendous amount of energy goes into the manufacturing process. With fossil fuels largely supplying this energy, the industrial sector is the second largest emitter of carbon dioxide. Steel, cement, and petrochemical manufacturing represent nearly 70% of these emissions. Efforts to reduce energy consumption, largely through efficiency improvements, have greatly reduced carbon emissions. But we are reaching the point of maximum efficiency and diminishing returns on further improvements. So, where do we go from here? Steel is the backbone of economic growth. This industry has seen significant innovation over the last 100 years. Two technologies now dominate global production. The first, basic oxygen furnace steelmaking, melts iron ore to make liquid steel. The iron making step, which uses coal as feedstock and fuel, represents 70 to 80 percent of carbon emissions from the steelmaking process. Electric arc furnaces bypass the iron-making step completely, using electrodes to melt recycled scrap to make steel. Assuming the electricity source is renewable, this technology seems to offer the solution to reducing carbon emissions. Yet, there are challenges. While a high percentage of steel can be recycled, continued economic growth creates a demand for new steel that can't be met by electric arc furnaces alone. In China, a country that has seen significant growth, basic oxygen furnaces have dominated production, driven largely by abundant coal resources. In the U.S., a market that has slowed over the years, electric arc furnaces handle 70% of production. With electrification comes the question of the potential role of renewables. On average, the total energy required to produce molten steel is 425 kilowatt-hours per ton. That equates to 127 million kilowatt-hours a year, equivalent to powering 12,000 homes. Nearly 1.7 billion tons of steel were produced globally last year. Renewables will be hard-pressed to meet this demand. If steel is the backbone, then cement is the glue. 
Today, Portland cement is used around the world as a universally accepted binding agent for concrete. The cement making process includes heating of limestone to make clinker. The kiln heating step is energy intensive with clinker forming at 2500 degrees Fahrenheit. Like the steel industry, there have been efforts to reduce energy consumption, but coal remains the heating fuel of choice. There has been a shift to natural gas in regions where access, regulation, and pricing are favorable. But the best substitute might come from an unlikely place. Waste fuel, such as tires, plastics, and waste oil, can be a drop-in replacement for fossil fuels. Many countries face waste management issues, and the cement kiln can act as an incinerator while reducing its own carbon footprint. One solution, two problems solved. But there are challenges. First, the waste needs to be processed to ensure toxins aren't released into the environment. Second, the permitting process to burn waste fuel can be burdensome and costly. Third, other clean air regulations may actually hamper the ability to burn certain wastes. Then there is the limestone itself which gives off carbon dioxide during the heating process. There is work underway to create alternatives to Portland cement. In most cases, green cement and concretes perform better than Portland, but it comes down to cost and proof of performance. Today, green cements represent less than 5% of worldwide production. Plastics have had a profound impact on economies around the world. Products created for healthcare, transportation, clothing, furniture, and food industries are lighter weight, cheaper, and more durable. From extending shelf life of food, to making cars lightweight and more fuel efficient, to saving lives in the operating room, we have greatly benefited from plastic innovation. But at what cost? Recently, plastics in the ocean have made headlines, and while it's clear that steps need to be taken to substitute, recycle, and reduce waste, attention also needs to be paid to the rising carbon emissions from growing petrochemical production. Compared to steel and cement, the petrochemical industry is a fairly new one. But as developing countries modernize and consumers demand new products, the petrochemical industry has seen significant growth in the last decade. This growth is helping to drive crude oil production around the world. The industry is closely tied to both oil and natural gas, which serve as energy source and feedstock to the chemical process. Let's take a look at three of the most energy and carbon intensive petrochemicals, ammonia, ethylene, and propylene. Ammonia is created when nitrogen is combined with hydrogen. The hydrogen is derived from natural gas reforming, where methane reacts with high-pressure steam to produce the hydrogen as well as carbon dioxide. One solution is to make hydrogen using electricity and water. The process is called electrolysis and is available today, but costs significantly more than natural gas reforming. Ethylene and propylene are produced through steam cracking, a process that uses extreme heat to crack the hydrogen chains into smaller ones that can then be used to make a variety of chemicals. 
substituting this thermal-driven process with oxidative dehydrogenation, which combines oxygen with ethane and propane to make ethylene and propylene, holds promise. But a catalyst is needed to control the chemical reaction, and that's yet to be identified. Fossil fuel combustion is often the largest contributor to carbon emissions in petrochemical plants. Biomass could serve as a substitute here, but is challenged by the highly integrated relationship between petrochemicals and oil and gas, and its inability to compete with fossil fuel prices. Increasing the use of biomass could also exasperate other problems regarding forestry protection and global food shortages. For steel, cement, and petrochemicals, many challenges lie ahead on the road to decarbonization. Disruptive innovation is needed to change how we make these products and the raw materials that go into manufacturing them. Demand for greener products could influence the shift needed in these industries. It's a long, complicated road ahead. But as we see average global temperatures continuing to climb, it's worth exploring. The 2015 Paris Climate Accord calls for the limiting of global warming to no more than 2 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. This will require near-total decarbonization of global economic activity by 2060. Reducing emissions in the industrial sector will be critical to meeting this goal. What could accelerate our progress and what threatens it? What technologies and policies will be critical to the shift to cleaner manufacturing? These are the questions that the Business Innovation and Climate Change Initiative team at UVA Darden's Batten Institute for Entrepreneurship and Innovation are trying to answer in a new report titled Path to 2060, Decarbonizing the Industrial Sector. The report reviews three industries, steel, cement, and petrochemicals, and discusses the levers needed to decarbonize their operations. Here to discuss these topics further is Mike Lennox, UVA Darden School of Business Professor, Senior Associate Dean, and Chief Strategy Officer. Welcome, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, when we started this research, you and I were convinced that electrification was the answer. Based on what we found, it's not that simple. Why? I think the state of some of the technologies makes electrification rather difficult. Um, Sometimes it's the heat involved. Sometimes it's the chemical processing that needs to take place. So while um, it has promise, and there are definitely opportunities as we lay them out in the uh, analysis, um, it, it might be overly optimistic to think we can electrify all of these processes. And with industrials, we are largely talking about commodity products that are highly sensitive to pricing. New technologies are expensive. What levers could reduce the cost and accelerate adoption? Yeah, I think this is really important. For a lot of these industrial uh, sectors that we're talking about, they're upstream. They're you know, not producing directly to consumer markets. And while some of the consumer pressure might find its way up the supply chain and, and put pressure on those companies, many of them are really going to be uh, what we call price takers. They'd be commodity-based, price, uh, commodity-based pricers who really are going to be sensitive to costs here. And I think what we have to think about, and as we've talked about in previous podcasts, is the learning curves. You know, how do we drive these technologies down the learning curves to the point that they are, in fact, 
the lower cost technology. Um, some of this can be done by incentives. Some of this can be done uh, by R and D and investment. Um, but ultimately, the winning technology will likely be the one that's the most efficient and the lowest cost in these sectors. And as we saw in some of the other sectors, uh, both in energy and electric vehicles, uh, investment in R&D is critical and could be very critical for this sector in particular. Um, investment by DOE and others to help commercialize, bring these technologies to market. Absolutely. Again, um, a, a lot of companies have uh, pulled back from kind of basic R&D and, and, and even some early stage uh, uh, translational you know, research to commercialization. So I think there is a role to be played by the public sector, uh, be it Department of Energy Labs, be it universities and others, uh, to fill that gap and to help advance some of these next generation technologies. Now, compared to the other sectors we've covered, industrial seems to be a good candidate for carbon capture technologies. What can be done to create the market needed to make these technologies viable? Yeah, the c- carbon capture is interesting. If you think about it, even if you could make it the most efficient possible, it still likely is an additional cost to a company from not doing any carbon capture. So, again, kind of in the same spirit of what we were just talking about, one would never expect a company to adopt carbon capture without some other incentive being placed in the market or system. So the most obvious one is putting some type of price on carbon, be it a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade system. Uh, absent that, we're going to need some regulatory response that's going to, again, motivate uh, and require carbon capture and storage. So I think a lot of people are correct in assuming that that's probably going to need to be part of that portfolio of uh, technologies we're using to try to address the carbon emissions. Um, but let's be clear, absent some type of price signal, there will be no adoption of of carbon capture technology. Uh, It it needs some market uh, incentive, or excuse me, outside incentive beyond what probably the market would provide. Or perhaps demand from a whole entirely different market for that carbon, right? Like in in cement, we saw that there are some emerging technologies that are taking the carbon and putting it back into the cement process. Yeah, exactly. And that's true. And there are some who are looking at how we can even use carbon as an asset that can be used to create you know, carbon fiber products and the like. So there are those possibilities. But again, we have to be cautious about like how much carbon is going to be utilized in those types of processes versus um, uh, that being produced. Mm-hmm. Now, in the U.S., industrialization has contributed greatly to some of the challenges we're facing today. And And in this country, we are trying to address some of those uh, challenges. But the future of industrial emissions seems to lie in the hands of developing countries. Why is this? Well, again, it's it's where you are in the stage of your economic growth. And, and as we outlay in the uh, report, many of these industrial sectors, the, the, the vast majority of production is taking place in developing economies like China. Um, so, you know, if we just focus on the U.S. and how the U.S. could reduce emissions in these sectors, we're missing the largest parts of the, the problem. Uh, and again, uh, in most of these sectors, China comes out kind of number one, in some cases by far and away, in terms of uh, producers. So these tech uh, of these products so uh, you've got to think about how you get 
you know, countries like China to adopt these new technologies as well. And use different energy sources. Because, of course, coal is uh, a big energy source in both China and India. No, absolutely. And, you know, as we've talked in previous podcasts about electric vehicles, um, you're not decarbonizing if that electric vehicle is uh, powered by coal-fired power plants to produce the electricity. Similarly, some of these alternatives that we've talked about, like mini mills and steel, uh, where you have electric arc furnaces, they're not zero carbon unless the electrical sources come from renewable sources. So uh, it it kind of relates to uh, electric utilities and electrical generation as well. Now, while we focus on three industries in the report, we have seen efforts to reduce carbon emissions throughout the sector, some of which are being facilitated by private companies. Can you talk a bit about the role that private industry can play here? Yeah, I think a, a recent example that's really interesting to see is Apple uh, partnering with Rio Tinto uh, to try to decarbonize aluminum uh, production. Um, it's interesting on a number of different levels. Here we have a downstream company who has a consumer market uh, in Apple. Uh, they're a user of aluminum, so now they're working back up the stream uh, to try to reduce some of their emissions. And we've seen this historically uh, in a number of sectors. If it's Home Depot working with timber manufacturers to try to reduce their environment environmental impact, or Walmart, who's one of the biggest uh, buyers of various goods and services that then they sell, uh, trying to work with their supply chain. So I think uh, uh, that relationship between these kind of upstream industrial companies and their downstream partners uh, that ultimately touch the consumer market need to be and can be an important partner in bringing about some of this change. Great, and let's hope they continue to do so. Mm-hmm. According to the World Economic Forum, we're moving into the fourth industrial revolution, defined by technologies like artificial intelligence, 3D printing, the Internet of Things, automation. What do you think the impact will be of these? Well, in our report, we really focus on what I would call these kind of upstream industrial processes, again, steel, cement, petrochemicals, and the like. Um, Of course, those are often inputs to downstream manufacturing processes where you're using steel and stamping it into products and services or products. Um, I think this new wave of of techniques, some have been around for a while, some are developing further, uh, promise greater efficiencies in those manufacturing processes, and they ultimately will hopefully find uh, impacts upstream um, by reducing the need, again, for some of these more uh, heavily polluting um, uh, technologies and, and, and products. Um, will they get us all the way there? Difficult to say. You know, um, Again, these efficiency increases can be really valuable and, and, and help, um, but we're going to need some fundamental transformation of those upstream technologies as well if we're going to reduce uh, the carbon emissions from them. Now, the big question... Will we decarbonize the industrial sector by 2060? I am uh, I'm an optimist by nature. Uh, I'm pessimistic on this one. Um, I think at the end of the day, when we think about the opportunities, just purely from a technology standpoint, uh, there are some interesting opportunities, some interesting investments, but there are just some really hard challenges in some of these sectors to get to uh, 100% reduction in, in carbon emissions. 
uh, or zero uh, carbon emissions. And so I think at the end of the day, it's actually going to take three things, right? One is changes in technology that reduce emissions. Second, we're going to need to reduce the reliance on uh, some of these these products, you know, be it uh, reducing the amount of steel needed to uh, be used in an automobile um, uh, and the like. And then last, uh, we'll have to seriously consider substituting away from some of these sectors. Are there other alternatives that can be used that will reduce the overall need and demand uh, in those sectors? And then maybe fourth, even to add, you know, going back to our comments on like cap- carbon capture and storage, that if we're really going to decarbonize these various industrial sectors, we might have to take that very seriously and, and then ultimately change policies that would motivate the adoption of those technologies. Great. Well, Mike, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. More information on the decarbonization of the industrial sector can be found in our report titled Path to 2060, Decarbonizing the Industrial Sector, available on the Business Innovation and Climate Change Initiative website at www.darden.virginia.edu forward slash innovation dash climate. Join us for our next podcast where we will discuss the agricultural industry. This is Becky Duff for Research and Relevance at Darden.